Hi, I'm Charles. Hi, I'm Bailey. And you are listening to Hold Me, I'm Scared. Welcome back to Hold Me, I'm Scared, where each week we pick out a spooky topic and explore it. So scary. (laughs) Okay, I hate it. Uh, This week we are talking about travel slash vacation horror stories. Uh, I'm excited. I have a good one. I'm excited too, because when you proposed this topic, I was traveling, though not very far from home. It's still, I was like, you know what? I hadn't even thought about that. And then I started thinking of all of these things that could go wrong, especially as I started reading stories like on the way back home. It just got worse and worse in my brain. And I was like, <laughs> I need to like, if I'm ever taking a trip, like I just need to make sure that I have like things prepared because these other people were like, make sure this and make sure that. And that's what I learned from this trip. And I'm just like, I don't really prepare much now. So if we get Mm-mm. stranded, I'm screwed. <laughs> Yeah, you're not uh, really big into, like, preparation in general. (laughs) Yeah, it's just kind of like a, I just kind of give, like, a loose outline in my head, and I just go with it. Yeah. Not you. It's a choice. You plan. No. (laughs) Almost to, I mean, the finest detail. And that's a good thing. Why do you say it like it's like a personal failing? That's a good thing. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying like sometimes some details just don't need to be planned. But I look, we're like two of the like polar opposites of it, even though I am an overpacker. So that's good. But I at least like I'm thankful for your skills and your attention to detail because like that trip to Japan that you basically made for us for me um had a lot planned out for me like you were like my travel guide thank you i think you could be a travel guide. i think i would be really good at it also i do want to say that i think that for a planner i am pretty good at being flexible like i did plan a lot but i also built in choices for you and then i would be like oh but if you don't do either of these things we can just hang out oh we love choices yeah, I'm like, I'm a, I like to plan every detail, but I accept I am flexible. And I think some people who are planners are not. So I am proud of the fact that I do make plans, but I accept that they can change and I don't freak out when they do. I can agree with this. I can agree with this. Look, I set out with the intention that you were too hard on details, but I think now that I really think about it, it's not true. So I guess for once in this relationship, you can be right. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. This is a big moment for me. Look, before before any of before we get into this, before we get into all of this, um, I have to know yeah. what you're afraid of today. I'm afraid that you're not going to cry at my funeral. Well, that's a very because, interesting point to bring because up. Because I asked you if you were going to cry at my funeral two days ago, and you didn't say yes. You said well, I would assume so. No, 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 no. No, no. I said the first time, you, which I'm pretty sure this happened yesterday, not two days ago. You said... I don't know what time is. <laughs> it's fine. You said, would you cry at my funeral? And I gave a sarcastic response and said, no, I'd be overjoyed. Of course I would cry at your funeral. And then you were like, I just, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then you posed the question again, 
And then I said, well, I would assume so. Yeah. I want you to know that you'll be devastated. I don't know that I'll be devastated, okay? I don't know the future. I'm sure that, like, all signs point to extremely sad, and I probably will cry, but I can't guarantee that I'll cry right away. I can't guarantee that I cry at all. Who knows how I deal with grief? Nobody knows. I've never lost a best friend to death, so I don't know if I'll just sit there, numb out. I don't know if I'll pretend like everything's fine and just be like, well, I can get over it. I don't know if I'll, like, slip into a depressive episode of, like, four years and then eventually crawl out. I don't know how it's going to happen. It's fine. It's just like, if you don't, I will, I will get, I will come back to life, get up out of the coffin, kick you in the shin so hard that it causes a hairline fracture, wait for your eyes to well up, and then I will go lay back down and die. I mean, I feel like you could go for a bit more than a hairline fracture, but... I'm assuming I'm not at full strength if I'm dead, you know? Oh, yeah. I'm going to be filled with, like, formaldehyde and all that stuff. Probably. So you'll be all, oh, my gosh, like that uh, that music video, My Chemical Romance, Helena, Helena. She, It's my favorite part. I've watched it just that part so many times. They, like, close her eyes, and she pops out of her casket, and she, like, ballet dances around the room. And then when everybody, like, ends the prayer, she falls back into her casket. It's so exciting. I want that for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do a dance for you. I'm sorry. What if I cry at your funeral? Well, then there's no reason for me to come back to life. You did what you needed to do. It's just a do. little dance. Uh, why? Why? I've already died. Now I ha- you're making demands of me? <laughs> it's exciting. <laughs> All right. Well, you get up and do a dance for me. <laughs> a little bit. What are you afraid of? Well, let me just tell you this. I'm afraid that I... Listen. I have captured and released four flies and a spider all within the past two hours in this apartment. And that is not only annoying, but... And look, I know. We all live on the same planet, okay? I live in a big box. They live outside the big box. Sometimes they come in the big box They don't know personal boundaries. They're just trying to escape from their own daily lives. And they're like, oh, look, a cool big box. Quite literally, cool, air-conditioned, right? I get it. Mm -hmm. But just, like, don't, don't, don't come in. I don't think bugs think. I think they do. (laughs) Um, Maybe not as deep as we do. They definitely do think. I don't think they do. They're animals. They think. Their brains are, like, so little. I don't think they... And little things can't think. You know, babies think, and babies have little brains, and they think about a lot of things. Well, I don't know that babies think. <laughs> they do. They do think. Um, yeah. I I don't think of... Are you saying, like, an ant has the same capacity of thought as a human baby? No. Well, obviously not. In, like, comparison to the sizes, like, you have an infant brain that's, like, the size of, like, I don't know, maybe a fist, a walnut, something between a walnut and a fist, and an ant, you think what? I was going to say, I think, I thought, aren't our brains supposed to be, like, two fists, or is that our heart? I think an adult brain is supposed to be your two fists together, and then your heart is one fist. My brain isn't very big, I guess. Yeah, but apparently it's not 
Um, the size of your brain is how wrinkly it is. Is what determines how smart you are. Oh, I hope I have the most wrinkled, wet, crinkled looking <laughs> brain out there. Which I know I don't, but I know it's got to be crinkled enough, especially to deal with you. Um, what did you say? But but wh- yes, to go back. Yes. What are you afraid of, though? Yes, the ant well, uh, bugs in my house, home. I don't live in mm-hmm. a house. I live in an apartment. I live in a home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that. Yeah, I think you just should start killing them. You know what you need to do? You need to kill one in front of all the others to send a message. You got to do it in like a really I've done this. I've done this. That doesn't do anything else. Oh, do you think maybe it's because bugs don't think? We're not doing this. We're not doing this. I'm not going to fall prey to your social traps like a bug who thinks, gets me into her web and sucks the blood out of me. What do you think our blood tastes like? I mean, I know it just tastes like blood, but like if it had a flavor, if our blood had a flavor, what do you think mine would taste like? And then I'll tell you what I think yours would taste like. Mm. I think your blood would taste like celery juice. Ew, I don't even eat celery. Yeah. Fuck you, first of all. Um, Well, I haven't. It's because you're healthy and you're like vaguely sweet, but also like... Not my first choice. (laughs) (laughs) It's because you're healthy, (laughs) vaguely sweet, and not my first choice. There's my Tinder bio right there. (laughs) Celery juice. (laughs) I'm like celery juice. I'm healthy, faintly sweet, and not your first choice. Oof, that feels too true. Yeah, I was going to say strawberry banana for you. Ew, I hate that. Okay, well, that's the first thing that came to my mind. So apparently we both... (laughs) give each other the flavors that we hate the most i don't know i hate the combination of strawberry and banana why that is a good combination it's an abomination you're an abomination and so it fits (laughs) uh yeah i don't know i just think it tastes gross together i like them separate i just think it creates i'm a fruit segregationist you are and i think it creates like a beautiful synergy relationship where they just combine like peanut butter and chocolate to make this like whole new flavor and you don't taste just strawberry and just banana like you taste something right in between and that's you don't get that all the time do you know what i do like strawberry and cheese bailey (laughs) do you know why because I watched the movie Ratatouille, and in Ratatouille, Remy, the rat, eats strawberry and cheese. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what that tastes like. And I tried it, and it's delicious. What kind of cheese? Like a, like a mild cheese, like a, like a Havarti, or even a cheddar. People put cheddar on apple pie. You know, I'm not a fan of this whole cheese and fruit relationship. I'm just not. And I'm also, you, you want to talk about weird flavor combinations, you know, Courtney? I'm familiar with your other best friend. She, you know how I love a slushie. Yes. I love a slushie. So when we get together, just like when you and I get together, anytime we're together, I'll get a slushie. <laughs> most, uh, most times. But Courtney and I will go and get a slushie almost every time we're together. And she also, we also sometimes get a snack. Right? So she decided to get a pickle. One of those pickles in a bag. Yeah. Well, this 
crazy freak decides to pour the brine of the pickle into her slushie, drinks it, and is like, mm, it's actually kind of low-key good. No. What flavor was the slushie? I don't know. Like, uh, like Coke? Oh, no, I don't think it'd be good with Coke, but I could see it, like, because it's just adding saltiness, really, so, like... It's not just saltiness, it's vinegar. It's vinegar and, like, garlic. Mmm, garlic Coke. No, you know what? I'm sick. I'm tired. <laughs> not only of your fruit segregationism, but also of you advocating for brine and a slushy. Slushies brine, are sacred. Brine, slushy, brine, slushy. Did you, they did a pickle slush. I don't at Sonic. I do not support this. I do not support it. I look, I think brine is delicious. I've taken a spoonful, a little swig from a pickle jar, okay? But I do not support the brine slushy. I don't support you being gay and that continues to happen. So guess we all have things we gotta cope well, with in life. You know, it's just a continuous choice <laughs> that I make <laughs> which Every day. is one hundred percent. A fact, which leads us into the facts and figures section. Um, Someone help her! Help her! (laughs) Oh no. Okay, after last week, we have to pull it together for this one. Okay. So, yes. I decided to kind of, like, narrow it down to the fear of travel, since, like, pretty much all vacations involve an element of travel. Um, So we've actually brought up this phobia before, I think, in our episode on the fear of airplanes. But um, hodophobia. Episode one, baby. Was that our first one? Sure was. We really peaked early, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So... I oh all of these facts and figures are basically ripped directly from WebMD. Thank you WebMD. So hodophobia is the medical term for the extreme fear of traveling, uh, but it is like colloquially referred to as trypophobia. Um, oh, but we know that is something else. Trypophobia or hodophobia? The fear of weird holes. Trypophobia. Oh. Some people might say trypophobia. It's like T R Y. Piophobia. I can't spell. <laughs> I did not win the spelling bee. Piophobia. Um, <laughs> um, they, yeah, it's like the fear of like weird little holes, you know, like holes, bread yeah. dough or a lotus rice thing. Can I say something controversial? I mean, it hasn't stopped you before. I like holes. <laughs> okay. They don't bother me. Like, it I depends like- on the hole. I like bread holes. Mm. Like when you have like a a piece of like crusty bread and you break it open and there's a bunch of little holes in it. I I don't think I mind the bread holes. It's the bread dough holes that I mind. Because I'll send you this TikTok. I saw this TikTok, okay? And he like it was in this like giant like one of those like five gallon paint buckets and he like it had risen all the way to the top. He spun it around and it like created all these like chains across kind of like like spider web almost, but it had a whole bunch of holes. It just wasn't a good time. I'm unable to visualize what you're describing. Well, that is not my fault. But I'm pro hole. 
on this podcast. <laughs> I am partial pro-hole. Um, okay, so hodophobia is a heightened fear, uh, usually of a particular mode of transportation, like airplanes. Um, but it's also phobia that can happen after a highly publicized event or disaster that strikes fear into the public. There are two main causes that can create a heightened fear of traveling. So the first um, usually results from a past negative experience while traveling. So that memory, basically like PTSD situation, the memory of that trauma or negative experience creates heightened physical and emotional stress response. Um, so for instance, you'll experience like panic attacks and anxiety at the thought of traveling in the same mode of transportation that the traumatizing event occurred in. And then the second is that it occurs after a significant world event gains national or international attention. So uh, one example of this would be like a pandemic outbreak um, or a mass shooting. So as Americans, we have plenty of reasons to be terrified of traveling. Good thing we've never had any of those in this country. Yes. Um, the primary symptom of hodophobia is anxiety. Um and it's like a fear that creates phys- usually like both a physical and a mental reaction um, and can even become a panic attack. In 2020, it was estimated that 25% of the American population had significant levels of anxiety about traveling. wonder why. Nothing happened last year. There are two types of therapy, uh, exposure therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy that are used to treat hodophobia. Um, but people also may be prescribed beta blockers which stop the physical effects of adrenaline surges that cause like uh, physiological anxiety symptoms or even sedatives to help them ease their anxiety while traveling. I would like to just take sedatives in general. Like whenever I have to do anything uncomfortable, I'd like to be like barely conscious. I'm not saying it's a bad idea. I'm just saying it's a slippery slope. I'm also already really tired all the time. So I probably would it even do anything. You know, I'm always like, you know, that's what people always describe me as. I'm just so relaxed. Yeah, that's like the top description. Mm -hmm. People are always like, Bailey, wow. I met her most chill. So calm. Calm, Mm. peaceful, relaxed. Zen. Zen person that I've ever met. That's how I describe you to Mm. people. I would never use things like high strung or like um, (laughs) jittery or. uh, I'm not jittery. Fast paste i don't know what you're talking about frankly i'm offended and well fast paste is um like drying fast drying elmer's glue get it i don't understand that reference fast because i instead of fast fast paste fast paste paste. (laughs) yes puns work so well in a non-visual medium i'm sorry that i don't just have elmer's and uh, some uh, whatever Whatever. You never understand me. No, but I still love you. And that's all that matters. What a good example for you all to take home, right? You may not always understand each other, but you still love each other anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I was trying to think of something, like, bitchy to say, but, uh... No, I just, like, I like you. I'm glad we're friends. Cut that out. Okay. Uh, so... So I am going first this week, and my would you rather for you is would you rather be 
okay, stranded in a foreign country where you do not speak the language, they're hostile to Americans, and you have, like, no possessions except basically the clothes on your back. Or be stranded at sea, um, but you are close enough to civilization that you have about a 50-50 shot of being rescued. You have a small but sturdy boat and a week's worth of rations. I mean... But, like, in the in the foreign country, it's, like, you... If you could find a way to get money, like, you could get home, you could buy things. It's not like you're in, like, the middle of the wilderness. You are in, like, a a city. I'm already in civilization as opposed to being out of it. Yeah. (sighs) I'm going with boat. I honestly think that's what I would pick, too. Because it seems like the best bet of, like, being able to at least try my damnedest to row to civilization. Yeah. I think it's a wise choice. Okay, so um, it is estimated by like a few different sources that about 200 people a year die on cruise. Holy oh my. shit. Can I help you? <laughs> and make that 201 <laughs> died outside. <laughs> die on cruise ships. And today, I'm going to tell you about the mysterious disappearance of George Smith. Okay, so George Smith IV was described by his parents as a great kid who... Oh, sorry. Rewind. So, I'm going to tell you about the mysterious disappearance of George Smith. Uh, My sources were a CBS News article, a CBS show, uh, 48 Hours, episode Murder at Sea, and the Hartford Current. Okay. So George Smith IV was described by his parents as a great kid who grew into a fine young man. He was funny, attractive, and had no problem getting dates. As a young adult, George was about to take over his father's liquor store in Green... Green... No. Is it Greenwich or Greenwich? I think it's Greenwich. In Greenwich, Connecticut. Um... He enjoyed working with his father, and they had a close relationship. George's father credits uh, his son's gregarious personality for building a strong rapport with the customers and building the business. So when George Smith IV was 23, he met Jennifer Hagel, a fun-loving, attractive blonde, and after dating for three years, the pair were married in a seaside ceremony. Family members described the couple as very happy and super excited to start their life together, and they were particularly eager for their honeymoon on Royal Caribbean's Brilliance of the Seas, which set sail in late June 2005. Do you remember when we were going to go on a cruise? I do, and then I don't can't re- remember what happened, really. Yeah, something, something like... Something weird happened. You know, some kind of, like, sickness and virus. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think it was maybe just in America. Um, what do we call it? <laughs> COVID? The air was poisoned. Yeah. yeah. Real bummer, you know. Um, but maybe at the end of the story, we will feel lucky. Okay, so on the first day of the cruise, George and Jennifer meet another pair of honeymooners, Paul and Galena Vitnitsky. 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 Jesus Christ. Sure. It's it's Vitnitsky. Viscosity. So Paul and Galena and George and Jennifer, they meet on the first day of the cruise. They get on swimmingly and they become like instant buddies. They get on swimmingly. Oh, I didn't mean to do that. I'm funny. 
I'm like really funny. No. Uh, <laughs> the Witnesskis described George and Jennifer as happy, down to earth people and said that the couple spent a lot of time together. Um, they would do things like gamble at the ship's casino and they also really enjoyed taking pictures of the scenery. Galena mentioned that while George enjoyed drinking, he didn't have much of a tolerance for alcohol and described him as the type of guy who got pretty drunk after four beers. Um, I am also that type of guy. Who gets pretty <laughs> drunk after four beers? I'm drunk after, like, used to have, like, the highest tolerance for alcohol. And, like, the older I get, the more my Irish heritage just fucking abandons me. And now I get drunk after, like, two beers. You know, I don't drink, but what do you what do you think my tolerance would be like? I feel like it'd be pretty low. I think it'd either be like nothing, like you would have a glass of wine and be like slurring your words, or it would be like shockingly, concerningly high. So just like either or. Yeah, for sure. Great. <laughs> Only one way to find out, but we never will. Not looking to find out. No, we won't. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay, so... Uh, which, hang on, let me just, like, post this out here so that, like, you know, you guys can, if whoever doesn't know me can, like, pick up more of my character. It used to be, like, a religious thing as to why I don't drink, but now it's more of, like, a mental health thing, and I think I'd use it as a really unhealthy coping mechanism. So, as I'm no longer religious, I still feel it's best to stay away, as I've known too many people who are alcoholics are you coming for me right now on this podcast i'm not coming for you (laughs) or other people who i know who are close to me in my circle yeah i am just stating a statement (laughs) i'm just stating a statement okay now to not lighten the mood at all we're gonna talk about the night of the disappearance so god Late on the night of July 5th, the two couples headed to the casino together. Jennifer went to her usual spot at the blackjack table while George headed to his spot at the craps table. George, Nobody's going to a slot? I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe the other couple, the Vitnitskis went to the Viniskis. Yeah, the viscosities. Vin- they went to the slots. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so George uh, was soon joined at the craps table by someone else that they had like met and kind of become friendly with on the cruise he was a college student from california named josh askin uh josh describes the casino as pretty busy and says that basically everyone over the age of 18 would congregate there at night also making the rounds that night were a group of russian american students uh they were cousins zachary and greg rosenberg and their friend rusty kaufman uh so that american college student uh, that uh, Californian college student Josh Josh Askin <laughs> Josh Askin had bet them on the cruise and like they were Carol Baskins and Rusty Coffin <laughs> they had all like become a little foursome of buddies okay so those are the, the the main players in this night okay so George and Jennifer were spending a lot of money at the casino and at one point George even went back to their cabin to get more cash for Jennifer to gamble with Uh, George's sister pointed out in her interview with 48 Hours that George also wore a very expensive watch. Their spending and his watch could have given people the impression that they were pretty wealthy. Uh, Paul Vitnitsky said that by the time the casino closed, both George and Jennifer were pretty inebriated, and he told George that he should turn in for the night. 
Um, so then the two couples part ways, um, and that's the last that the Vitniskis see of George. Because as the sun rises over Kusadasi, Turkey, early the next morning, 16-year-old Emily Roush steps onto her balcony on the cruise ship to take some pictures. But what she sees instead of the beautiful scenery is a huge blood stain on the lifeboat canopy beneath her balcony. Oh. So <laughs> she says, like, I just assume in the interview, she's like, I just assume someone died there. <laughs> she's just like, yeah, I guess someone died there anyway. Um. <laughs> click, click. No, she alerts the ship's personnel and the ship security does like a like an inventory of the passengers and they discover that the Smiths, both George and Jennifer, are missing from their room. So they take pictures of the vacant room and they start paging the couple. Like you page at like someone lost kid's mom at the grocery store. Not like page on pagers. <laughs> Bailey, your father is waiting for you at the front. Your father is waiting for you at the front. Do you know that when Has I... Has that was... ever happened to you? Okay, no, but I... When I was a kid... Um, sometimes I would prank my parents by yelling, you're not my mommy or you're not my daddy. Oh my God. And you know what? I can't, I don't even find that surprising. <laughs> I don't even find that surprising because of one of your last relationships as you were getting into the car or as you guys were like play fighting and he was putting you into the car. You were like, sc- what were you screaming? He opened, he like, opened the door for me and I was like. I don't know you. I don't want to go with you. <laughs> it's just like it's funny about like in today's climate. No, I know. I wouldn't do it now. That was a, something in my youth. I don't know. I wouldn't put it past you to do it with me. I really wouldn't. I would do it with you if I was really irritated with you. But yeah, I don't know. Is that's not funny? I really, really never should have pulled. It's low key funny. That stunt. Um. Okay, so anyway, members of the ship's personnel uh, question Paul and Galena, the Vitniskis, which I'm never going to be able to just say that name smoothly. Viscosity. uh, About George's whereabouts, but they explain like, mm, oh, okay, so sorry, pause, rewind. Okay, so the ship's security discovered that the Smiths were missing from their room. They took pictures of the vacant room and they start paging the couple. Yes, we've established that. Okay. Now cut to this, Charles. So members of the ship's personnel question Paul and Galena Vitniski about George's whereabouts, but they uh, explained that they hadn't seen him since they parted ways after the casino the night before. They were asked to go to guest relations, and when they got there, they found Jennifer, who had been located getting a massage in the ship's spa. The crew explained to Jennifer and the Vitniskis that George was missing and presumed overboard. Have you ever seen that movie, Overboard? Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn. No. Okay, well, I have it's I haven't watched it's an old movie and I haven't watched it in a few years, so apologies if it's like canceled now. Uh but I remember thinking it was so goddamn funny when I saw that movie. 
Everyone go watch Overboard. Tell me what you think of it. Okay, so Jennifer insists that she has no memory after leaving the casino. Remember, she and George are both pretty inebriated. She explained that when she woke up alone in the morning, she assumed that George had stayed over at the Vitniski's cabin. And Galena described Jennifer as being really confused and panicked. She said that Jennifer kept saying that she wanted to call her dad, um, which, like, at this point, George is 26. I'm assuming Jennifer is, like, near his age. So, like, she's still, like, kind of young. Um, and so, yeah, she wants to call her parents for comfort. Uh, meanwhile, George's family is contacted, and they're in a complete state of disbelief. They assume, like, he's got... It's a big... It's a huge cruise ship. He's got to be on the boat somewhere. Like, uh, but... What the Smiths didn't know was about that blood stain, and they also didn't know about the investigation that was now underway on the brilliance of seas. I mean, honestly, like, that's probably what I would think if somebody was like, hey, by the way, your, I don't know, husband, father, sister, brother, they fell off of, uh, or no, they, you know, they're missing on the boat, and then they're presumed to have fallen overboard. I also would be like, are you sure you checked the whole cruise ship? Because it's a cruise ship, right? Like, they're huge. Meanwhile, I would be like, they're dead. They're definitely dead. There's no way that they're dead. That they're alive. They're dead. And I'd just, like, I'd, be, I'd start planning the funeral. <laughs> Once again, Bailey and I, the two <laughs> polar opposites who somehow get along extremely well. Mm-hmm. For the most part. Hey, I think... Hey, we're allowed to disagree. We've never... How dare you say that? We've never disagreed. You're right. We would never do that. And there would never even be, like, proof on the podcast. (laughs) Roll the montage. Okay. Yeah, roll the amusement park episode. (laughs) So, you promise you'd never mention that again. I'm bringing that up in therapy. So, the Turkish police... The what now? (laughs) The Turkish police... Why can I not speak lately? Not the Turkish police. Shut your mouth. The Turkish police board the ship uh, and the Royal Caribbean documents the forensic investigation that follows. And in the ship's lobby, they round up Josh Askin, that Californian college student, and the group of Russian Americans, Rusty Kaufman and Zach and Greg Rosenberg. They had all partied with George the night before. Now, Josh's father secretly recorded the police's interview with the group, and that video only captures snippets of what has emerged over the years as a very complex story, and it's a story in a timeline that people have gone over and over and over again and debated the validity of for years, but their story, all four of them, has never changed. And remember, this happened back in 2005. Hmm. So... So, like, even till today, it hasn't changed at all? So, the latest, I'll get into it a little bit later, but the latest information that I could find about this case was in 2015. Uh, So, I'm assuming no, because I feel like there would have been, like, news reports on that if something changed. Um, But, yeah, as of 2015, 10 years later, they were all still telling the same story. Yeah, because they all murdered him. Well, now I'm going to tell you that story. Okay. So it starts at 2.30 a.m. right after the casino is closed. The group of young men join George and Jennifer and some others, and they decide to go to a disco on the ship. Uh, Josh describes noticing this, like, kind of awkward moment when Lloyd, the manager of the casino, put his arm around Jennifer. 
like briefly uh, in the elevator on the way to the casino. Uh, now at the disco, the boys had, I say boys, but they're like college students. Uh, the students had smuggled in a bottle of absinthe and everyone was taking shots. And remember, George and Jennifer were already pretty drunk. So girl, absinthe. Yeah. That's like alcohol hallucinogenics. Like that's a whole other. So you can get absinthe that is like not a the absinthe that you would buy like here in the states is not a hallucinogenic i right like there's like the lower grade like not the real yeah i don't know if yeah i don't know if this i would be willing to bet that this is probably just a very like heavy alcohol but not necessarily hallucinogenic but regardless i doubt anyone needs to be drinking shots of it at 2 30 after they just drank all night in a casino Uh, it literally makes me able to think of doing that. And I've only had absinthe a couple times. It's disgusting. And, uh, it's just, oh, I just got, I just got so many memories. Okay. So in, in a, throw up. <laughs> stop. Throw up. Throw up. Shut up. Okay. So in a 2006 interview with 48 Hours, Rusty Kaufman, one of the Russian American students, says that, while he couldn't hear what they were saying, he did observe an altercation between George and Jennifer, during which Jennifer kicked George in the groin and stormed out. So something's okay. going on with them. Okay, so according to Zach Rosenberg, Rusty Kaufman, and Josh Askin, the casino manager, the one that put his arm around her in the elevator and had kind of like an awkward moment because uh, her husband was also right there, followed after her. And Josh, like, would uh, later when being interviewed by the Turkish police on the ship, he said, quote, she had no idea what happened. She was with another man, the casino manager, Lloyd. You need to get him in here, end quote. So he was really adamant that this happened. Uh, so the men claim that they don't know where Lloyd, the man, the casino manager, and Jennifer went, but by 3.30 a.m., the disco was closing, and George was, like, hella drunk to the point that he is slumped over a chair. Uh, And the boys actually had to carry him to his cabin because he was so inebriated. The key card to the room logged their arrival at 3.52 a.m. And during that secretly recorded interview with the Turkish police, the boys were questioned as to whether Jennifer was there when they arrived, and they all say that she was not. So they get into the room, and George suddenly decides that he wants to go look for Jennifer. And the boys had what was described by Rusty Kaufman's attorney, Albert Dayan, as, quote, a loud discussion, debate about whether they should assist him. So they're all kind of arguing about, like, should we let him go look for him, go help him? Or should we just, like, we did our part. Let's, like, fuck off and let him do what he wants to do. He's wasted. Um, the boys end up going out with him. And after a brief, brief search, they return to his room at 401. Uh, They lay him on his bed and take off his shoes. They said that George didn't seem angry, and he was actually thanking them for their help, even hugging and kissing a couple of the boys. All four of them say they left together as a group, and that was the last they saw of him. Gay. (laughs) Um, Okay, so that's their story. But... Just after 4 a.m. So they say they left, like, they brought him back to his room at 4.01, had a brief interaction with him, uh, and then left as a group. Well, just after 4, supposedly right around the time that they all left, another passenger, Cleet Hyman, who is a vacationing deputy, 
I'm I'm done. Listen, I'm <laughs> I'm not saying that we're currently like in the interview process for a new host, but I am saying we have been receiving interested applications. Shut up. Um this podcast would be nothing without me. So you say. Okay. Passenger Cleet Hyman, funny name, a vacationing deputy police chief hears a disturbance next door in the Smith's room. He Hang said, on, it just hit me. It's not just Hyman that's funny. His name is basically Clit Hyman. Yeah. Cleet. I'm into that. Good for him. Feminism. <laughs> yeah, but he's a police chief, so. Hmm. Well, we take what we can sometimes. So, okay, so he says that he hears a loud argument on the Smith's balcony, and he says between, like, three or four individuals. Now, Rusty's attorney says that at no point were the boys on the balcony. So, like, it's kind of murky here. Like, could he be hearing, like, could he just think it's coming from the balcony because of, like, how sound travels, and he's just hearing that kind of loud discussion, uh, like, about whether or not, you know, where they're all kind of deciding whether or not they want to go help him look for Jennifer, or were they there after 401 when they say they return into his room and they're having an argument about something else on the balcony? We don't really know. Murky. Yeah. So uh, after, so uh, to quote Clint Hyman, uh, <laughs> he says, after about two minutes of the argument, we heard one low, low, oh, fuck me. Okay. Wow. They heard one low, fuck, fuck me. me. They heard one lone male voice repeatedly saying good night, good night, like they were ushering someone out of the room. He said, I looked out and saw three male individuals walking away from the room. And at this point, we heard just one lone voice of the room in the room. And we heard what sounded like the cupboard doors being closed loudly and also sounded like furniture being moved, he said. Okay, so he says... He saw only saw three people leave the room, and then he hears one voice, and then like a bunch of this like commotion. So that's Cleet slash Clit Hyman's story. Okay, so Greg and Pat Lawyer, who are in the cabin on the other side of the Smiths, hear something pretty similar. Uh, Greg Lawyer said, "Quote: There was something. Uh, there was what I call trashing of the room sounds. Sorry, that was phrased really weird. There was what I call trashing of the room sounds. I thought somebody was throwing furniture around, either mad or having a good time, so we dismissed it at that point. After about two minutes of total silence, however, there was a large, what I would call a horrific thud. So. Horrific thud. Now there's hmm. something you don't think of every day. <laughs> Yes, so that thud is believed to be the sound of George Smith hitting the metal canopy uh, where they saw, where that girl, uh, Emily Roush, I think was her name, saw the the blood. So that's what they think it is. That was the sound of George Smith hitting that metal canopy around 4.30 a.m. And around that same time, Jennifer is found passed out in a hallway on the ship. Uh, so Dayan, Rusty's attorney, says that Rusty is a big guy, and he thinks that it's possible that his body obscured the view of the fourth member from the group. So while Hyman said that he only saw three people leaving, he's like, someone could have been in front of Rusty, and like you probably wouldn't have seen them because he's a big guy. He and all of the boys maintain that they left together, and by 4.30 when that thud was heard, they were back at Zach and Rusty's cabin ordering a shit ton of room service. I'm waiting for the for a, a splash 
a splash uh, report. Well, he's. We know that he went overboard because they never found him on the ship. So <laughs> maybe they ate him. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? You should I mean, call like, the FBI and let them know this theory. <laughs> what if they were like, look, or look, maybe he like ran away to be a performer on the cruise line or they ran out of food so they had to figure out so wait he ran away from the cruise ship to be a performer on the cruise ship well he staged a coup to where i don't think that's what coup means would be like like presumably dead and then when the cruise ended everyone would be like oh yeah he's dead meanwhile he's actually living his life his lifelong dream of being a performer on the ship on the next cruise, and so on and so forth. Okay. So coming back to reality, uh, suspicion initially f- fell on Jennifer, obviously the widow, kind of the first place you would look. Uh, and she was also super consistent in her story that she had literally like no recollection. She basically was like blackout drunk when they left the casino. And uh, she even went on Oprah to like defend herself. And focus was redirected to that story told by Josh Askin and the Russian-American students. So the FBI began an investigation that would span 10 years. Um, And at the time, the ship's captain, like when it initially first happened, the captain was describing it as he, he was pretty sure it was an accident. He said that he thought that George was drunk and he sat on the railing like on his balcony and just fell off, hit the um, lifeboat, and uh, and then drowned. Probably, unfortunately. It's just sad. <laughs> I know. So, but George's family thinks this theory is ridiculous, and they firmly believe that foul play is involved. I mean, okay, I understand. Like, believing about foul play. Yeah. Or, like, whatever. But, like, it's not unbelievable to think of a drunk person falling off of a cruise ship. No, and honestly, it makes a lot of sense to me. Like, because you have to... So, he was already drunk when they left the casino at 2.30. He goes to a disco and starts taking shots. Um, He's so drunk that he has to be carried to his room. Like... I could, like, obviously he did not have full control of his, like, body. I think the sound, I think it's possible that the sounds that they heard of, like, people slamming around could have been, like, him being super wasted and looking for something or even just, like, trying to get to the bathroom and, like, crashing into stuff. I mean, he was really drunk from what it sounds like. And I, it's not that preposterous, right? They, like, don't spell. But there is some evidence that does kind of suggest foul play. So photographs taken by Royal Caribbean uh, inside of the Smith's cabin revealed two small lines of blood on the bed sheets. Uh, The Smiths say it was George's blood and another sign pointing to foul play. And they hired an attorney, Mike Jones, to help them gain access to all of Royal Caribbean's investigative files. So... Jones believes that George was murdered, and he thinks that the four young men, Josh Askin and those Russian-American students, were all involved. Um, So he goes and deposes all of them. So Josh Askins pleads the fifth to every question asked, 
uh, to him. And this is at the direction of his attorney. His attorney said, quote, uh, that the FBI told us that if Josh ever says anything that is different to what he said before the grand jury, anything, they will fly him back to Connecticut on perjury charges. I couldn't have that happen. So uh, by the time that Mike Jones is hired and starts deposing the boys, the investigation's already been going on for a while. So the boys have also testified in front of a grand jury. And now the FBI is saying, like, you make one slip up, you change one thing about your story, and we're coming for you. Which I, like, to be honest, I don't really get that tactic. It's like, let me just make you hyper aware of, like, the one thing that you shouldn't do if you don't want to get caught. Like, I would be like, you know what? Say whatever you want. Keep talking. (laughs) I wouldn't, like, be threatening Right, because I would, like, feel like they would slip up anyway. Yeah, but now they're, yeah, uh, because the FBI said that to Josh, he was like, listen, anytime anyone asks you anything from now on, you plead the fifth. And... To be fair, all of the boys had initially been really cooperative. Um, During his deposition by Mike Jones, the Smith's attorney, Rusty Kaufman didn't plead the fifth, but he stated, I do not have a recollection of that in regard to any question he was asked, pretty much. And his attorney said that throughout the investigation, he had initially been super cooperative. However, the more he tried to work with the FBI and tell them his story, the more they accused him of foul play. So it's like, oh, like, the FBI is like getting the vibe or like something in his story isn't checking out and that's why the more that he talks the more he think he's thinks he's guilty or is it like they have nothing to go on and so they're like kind of trying to like bully him and pressure him into confessing something we don't know um Zachary Rosenberg also invoked his fifth amendment right against self-incrimination when deposed by Mike Jones so he didn't offer anything either and the only one who did actually talk was Greg Rosenberg. So in 2010, this is five years after uh, George's disappearance, Mike Jones finds Greg Rosenberg in a Florida prison. He's serving three years for trafficking oxycodone to support like his lavish tastes, basically. He's like, I'm really into like fashion, like uh, shoes, jewelry, stuff like that. So I like trafficked oxy to make a bunch of money so i could buy a bunch of expensive shit um you know sometimes you have to manifest the life you want right and sometimes that comes from like starting everything in motion like selling oxycodone yeah and then you manifest three years in prison um but his story so he did talk but his story was still consistent with the story from five years previous um he says the boys left together just after 4 a.m and by 4 30 a.m they were back in uh one of their rooms zach and rusty's cabin ordering room service and basically having like a room service party so that same year 2010 mike jones finally gets the internal documents from royal caribbean and he says that while they note several short calls from Zach and Rusty's cabin to room service after around 4.13 a.m., there is no record of any order placed. And to me, this is kind of inconclusive because it's like, well, like, why would you be calling room service if you're not going to order any food? And I'm like, it is a very off time. So maybe they just like didn't note the order because they're like, it was just a slip up um, or because like, they only they didn't have a lot of orders to keep track of because it's like 4 15 in the morning 
So Keith Greer, who's Josh Askin's attorney, sorry, it's a lot of names to keep track of, um, he insists that the room service party did take place. Uh, but uh, all in all, at the end of it, it kind of doesn't really matter because it's not really an alibi to begin with since it, the if the calls were like made around 4.15 a.m., it wouldn't have been delivered uh, until after George went missing. So it's like it, it's not like they would have been like all together, like eating while like when Georgia missing because it would have been delivered after. Um, now there's also some holes poked in their story about Jennifer storming out and being with Lloyd. Remember Josh Askins was like super adamant that this happened. Um, so key card records show that Lloyd entered his girlfriend's cabin at 3.25 a.m. And there are multiple witnesses saying that they saw an intoxicated Jennifer leave the disco alone at 3.30. Um, and to me, this is also kind of like, eh, inconclusive because when you're drunk, you, like, really drunk, you can kind of remember things in, like, snippets and you're not sure, like, exactly when, like, the sequence of events. Uh, so I think it's possible that, um, Josh had noticed this awkward moment in the elevator and then like in his like kind of cloudy memory of the night, just like conflated Jennifer's leaving with, uh, Lloyd's leaving since they left like within five minutes of each other and just like kind of filled in. Cause that's kind of what you do with like drunk memories. You'll like fill in the gaps for yourself. So I could see that happening. I could see him really like thinking like, oh, she left and then he left right after as opposed to he left and then she left. You know what I mean? Right. And I feel like honestly, like everybody was so drunk that like nobody's story is quite credible, but also like all very possible at the same time. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, like, that's what makes this so frustrating. Um, And yeah, I don't know, man. After reading a story... Your decision to never drink is seeming like a pretty good one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, the, okay, so also there are witnesses from the cruise ship, uh, some employees that say that they, like, escorted Jennifer onto an elevator because she, again, was super intoxicated uh, and tried to, like, help her get to her room. So they let her off on her floor, but she ended up going the wrong way um, and on deck nine and then an hour later she was found passed out in that hallway like near where the crew dropped her off and that was around the time that uh george went overboard so lloyd and jennifer also both passed fbi polygraphs so right we just got like a lot of like weird puzzle pieces <laughs> that, like, we don't really know how they fit together okay so i'm gonna give a Brief warning for this next part. Uh, I will be very briefly and not in detail at all discussing sexual assault. If you don't want to hear that, just skip forward about 30 seconds. Okay. So, we're going back. So, uh, two days after George Smith went overboard. An 18-year-old passenger comes forward with a major allegation of sexual assault. She says that she was completely intoxicated and in between blackouts remembers being raped by Greg Rosenberg, Rusty Kaufman, and Jeffrey Rosenberg, who is Zach Rosenberg's younger brother. So Greg, uh, Rusty, and Zach, they were the three that were like hanging out with Josh, um, the Californian student, and also hanging out with George that night. Um, and so, 
So this was not on the same night as uh, George went missing. This is two days after he goes overboard. A passenger comes forward and says, like, this happened. And was this passenger, like, part of the party? No. So this was, like, I think this happened the night after George, like, we assume he went overboard. Um, And, like, they were hanging out with her the next night. And then, allegedly, Greg Rusty and Jeffrey Rosenberg, who's Zach Rosenberg's brother, raped her while she was, in like, unable to consent because she was blackout drunk. Oh, God. Okay. So, this, like, particular allegation isn't necessary. I'm not going to, like, go really into it. Uh, there are more details, but I don't think it's necessary because it's not super relevant to the case. But why I have to mention it is that it was taped. Oh, no. <laughs> and so after that accusation, the cruise line, uh, Boots Kaufman and his friends, including Josh, uh, who was like in said to be in the room during this, but wasn't a part of it. He says he believed that it was consensual. And today, no charges have been brought against Kaufman or any of the boys for the alleged rape. Um now, it was reported to local authorities, but they basically washed their hands of it, saying it wasn't in their jurisdiction, so that doesn't you know, necessarily mean that they were innocent. Uh, the boys and their attorneys say that this is because the tape proved that it was actually consensual, but, like, to me, uh, likely story, you know? Yeah, <laughs> You're not going to really be like, if the police are like, oh, it's not our jurisdiction, like, too bad. You're not going to be like, well, I did do it. <laughs> like, okay, so that's kind of where, like, the allegations end. But this tape is irrelevant for another reason. So it goes into the possession of the FBI and they find something else recorded on it. So FBI Director John Miller explains that the day after George disappears, the two Rosenbergmen and Rusty Kaufman are eating breakfast in the cruise ship uh, and they um, begin filming each other. So Miller explains that the men were recorded laughing about the situation and mocking George and like making fun of like they talk about him being rich and like making fun of him for that. And then the camera stops on Rusty Kaufman, who said, quote, we gave that guy a paragliding lesson without a parachute. I mean, you don't just say that for no reason. Right. That, it looks pretty hinky. And then, uh, so Miller goes on to say, quote, but the really sort of incriminating statement is when one of them, Greg Rosenberg, stands up at the end of the tape and sort of hunches his shoulders and flashes gang size and says, told you I was gangsta, end quote, Joe. <laughs> uh, and, um, I'm not sure that that was the incriminating one. <laughs> right, exactly. That's like what I thought. And he, but he's like, I'm also like, mm. Like, I don't know. Um, that just seems very, like, dumb teenager. Yes. And he says, but he says, like, because they had been talking about George's death, that it seemed almost like he was bragging about, like, having done something to him. I guess. I could like, kind I of can see, see that. Yeah. But, like, that that would not sell it for me. It exactly. was a paragliding lesson for me. Yeah. I, I agree. I totally agree. Okay. So, Mike Jones, the attorney that the Smiths hired believes that the way that George and Jennifer dressed, George's expensive watch, and the way they were spending money at the casino that night inspired an attempted robbery by the young men. So he believes that the perception fueled... uh, Oh, right. So he believes that um, 
so when they went back to the room and they put George to bed, remember after they went out briefly to look for Jennifer, they take his shoes off, he hugs and kisses him, whatever. So Josh says that he had like gone into the bathroom before they left. So Jones thinks that um, while he was in the bathroom, the three others were arguing about whether or not one of them or two of them should stay behind and see if they could find money or and like take his um, expensive watch because George is super inebriated. So he's like an easy target. Right. This is like a, it's like right in their hands. Yeah. Um, and he says that he thinks that that was the argument that <laughs> our lovely named Cleet Hyman heard on the balcony. He also uh, says that, that he thinks this uh, fits with like what the witness saw, which was just three men leaving. So he right. thinks maybe one all of the thuds of like throwing around things. Exactly. Like find money. Yeah. So he thinks one of them stays behind. It starts to like go through all the drawers and cabinets to find money. Exactly. And that's what the, the like trashing room sounds were. Okay, so then he also says that, remember how I said that in the photos that Royal Caribbean took, there were, like, two, there were there was blood on the sheets that the Smiths think is George's blood. So yeah. the, he says that the blood is in two, like, s- small, like, centimeter-long splashes. And to him, it looks like if you were taking off a watch and you pinched your skin. Um, and so he thinks, like, while they're taking off George's watch... He wakes up and uh, from like his drunken stupor because he gets pinched, and then that's when like a fight ensues, and that's why people heard like more of the banging, and then that's how he got thrown overboard. Oh, okay. So basically, he thinks he was passed out drunk. One of them stays behind to rob him. When they go to take off the watch, one or two of them stay behind, but probably once people say they saw three leaving. One of them, when he takes off the watch, he pinches George, which wakes him up. They fight. He throws him overboard. That feels like a valid story. Yeah, but, like, also a lot would have to, like, it would have had to happen, like, exactly like that. Right. Especially, like, the the watch pinching and, uh, and, and the also, two like, blood stains. You have to remember that Josh Askin, he did not know the three other boys until the they met on the ship. So to me, it's like, like, obviously he has had to know something was going down. Sorry. Pause for city. Hold sounds. for ambulance. <laughs> um, so like, I don't, I don't see how like in just a few days on a cruise ship with these boys, he would have formed such a strong bond that like for 10 years, he maintains a story that the four of them left together. And also George was not rich. Um, so, like he had that nice watch but he was not rich they did not have money stashed around the cabin so it's not like they all got this like you know it was a big heist and they all got this big score and they got to protect their <laughs> their take like i don't know why josh wouldn't have like turned on them under yeah, pressure from the fbi but then again i mean josh was like the the all-around good guy right eh, i mean supposedly he was in the room during the sexual assault that i mentioned well yeah but like beforehand you had mentioned like he was the one who was like the good looking, like whatever dude. No, that was George. <laughs> oh, that was oh, that was George. Okay, well never mind. Um Josh is mind. the California different... Josh is the Californian college student. He had become friends with these three Russian American college students. Right. Okay. And... Well look, I I wouldn't put it past him, but 
Don't. Also, once again, we come back to like this whole like drunken whatever. Like this yeah. would have to be a really elaborate. Yeah, and so Josh Maybe not even really elaborate, but like it just it would have had to happen likely. just like that. Um, and then also again, like these four like college age kids would all. I mean, like I don't like calling adult men kids, but like these four like college age probably idiots. Um, would all have had to maintain this story and protect each other for so long. I mean, to this day, like, I mean, I guess unless they really did something as heinous as throw a man overboard, then I would be sure to keep my story straight. Under this theory, only one of them did. I mean, and like, and, and it wasn't, that no one thinks that it was Josh and Josh only knew these people for like a week. So why would he protect them for years and years and years and keep saying like, oh yeah, we all left together. We all had this party. Like how would no one, I don't know. I look, I do think it's possible, but I'm saying like, it's like, I I go struggle with it. I go back and forth because to me it's also hella likely that this dude was drunk and angry with his wife they had a fight she kicked him in the nuts he goes out gets wasted slams things around in his room goes to like sit on the balcony and just falls over because he's hella drunk yeah that one does seem more likely to me too but look i don't think any of these guys are like like not I'm not talking about George. I don't think any of these or four like guys are like standard. good guys. There's also like allegations that they like cussed at room service. They were smoking in their rooms when they weren't supposed to. Like they sound like like jerks, but I'm saying like you can be an asshole. You can even be like a truly terrible human if these allegations are true. And I tend to believe victims, so I tend to believe that they are. Um, you can even argue that they are disgusting human beings, but that doesn't necessarily make them murderers. That's also true. Okay. So, kind of along that vein, Josh Askins' lawyer, Keith Greer, says, like, yeah, like, uh, this could all happen, but it's all speculation. And Cleet Hyman himself said that the sounds that he heard were not ones that were indicative of a physical altercation. He didn't hear, like, violent language, uh, even though he heard an argument. You know, he didn't hear anything that he was like, oh, like, they're, like, about to throw down. Um, he I didn't agree with that too. It is very all speculation. Yeah, he didn't hear any kicking sounds or like hitting or smacking. Um, and Greer basically says kind of what you said. He's like, look, everyone was just like super drunk. Um, and he th- still maintains that he thinks George fell overboard. So uh, Mike Jones, the Smith's attorney, theorizes that Josh knows what happened but wasn't directly involved. And to support his theory, he points to a clue that was uncovered by Royal Caribbean. So in their files, um, it states that a ship employee overheard Josh speaking to a friend on an elevator. And he said, quote, I I know more than they think I know. Those expletive almost got me arrested in Turkey. So I don't know. Because <laughs> uh, I'm also like. I don't know. And because he also could be talking about those sexual assault allegations. Yeah. There's just like not enough for us to. Yeah. And so additionally, the FBI told Josh that he failed a polygraph, which like the FBI maintains he did. His attorney says he thinks this was a tactic to rattle him. 
Sources told CBS News that Rusty Kaufman also failed a polygraph. Greg Rosenberg was administered a private polygraph test, and it was inconclusive. Hmm. So the investigation carried on for 10 years, and despite all of the suspicion and like all of the circumstantial evidence, uh, in 2015, the FBI closed the investigative probe into George's death. And since then, there has been no news that I was able to find on this case. So it's just seemingly a cold case now? Yeah. Wow. Isn't that crazy? And I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, my, my, like, the top thing in my mind is, like, he was just drunk. He fell off. Yeah, that's kind of where I lean too. But then but, like, that video, that video is like, why would you say we gave him a paragliding lesson? Why would you say the paragliding thing? But then that. But here's here's another theory. Okay, what if that? Remember, they carried him back to his room. So what if like that was in reference to to that? Like, what if they like threw him onto the bed or like you know they like he was like referencing them all like carrying him to his room i don't know i mean it's not like super it doesn't make like super sense but like it's possible it is possible or it's possible that they like i don't know he went over board to throw up or they helped him go over and they they he felt i don't know there's just too much like in between that we'll just like never know i guess and that's, that's what makes just... it a scary world out there. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not yet. That is what makes it a scary world out there, but um, we still got a whole other story. Listen, your story was crazy. Um, I loved it. I really did. Um, I, I just didn't think of a would you rather because I was kind of like entranced in your story. Um, I'm really good let, at Let me think. Okay. Um, would you rather go on vacation but end up living in that country even though you never planned on it and I mean you have to start over a whole brand new life right or would you rather just go on your own little day trip in your own country and there's like a 25% chance that something bad will happen to you as opposed to like the 100% chance that you will never get to go back to your home country and the other one. Yeah, I'd rather go live in another country. Okay. Um, I think, I don't know. I'm not sure that I want to start a, a whole new life over. Oh, I fantasize about it all the time. Okay, I think I might just stick with the twenty-five percent chance something that something bad might happen to me. Um, that's pretty low. Travel, it comes in many forms, right? Whether it's vacation, we've talked about that for a job, a field trip, just a day trip to another state. Most of the time, you have a plan of all the fun things that you're gonna do, and sometimes you're even able to veer off the path and find something undiscovered that you didn't expect to find. That's like a joyous thing, or even like I don't know. Maybe like murdering somebody because they're rich on a cruise ship. Um, however, there are times when things don't work out. Sometimes it's a minor inconvenience. Like, oh, my flight got canceled, so I had to book another one. 
Uh, but other times it could mean like certain death. So today I've compiled some stories that touch on the dangers of traveling, each one setting out with a good intention only to find themselves in a place they rather would not be in. So first, let's go over something you've probably never encountered or dealt with, the COVID-19 pandemic. Anybody? No takers, right? Because Never heard of it. Same. Now... We all remember being stuck at home and quarantine, feeling like there wasn't any escaping for us. And sometimes it still feels that way, especially with the new strains. But that's like a whole different thing. We're vaxxed. So I try to tell myself, um, I'm safe. I'm vaccinated. I'm safe. I'm vaccinated. I'm not safe. Um, We're safer. Safer. I'll take safer. So what if you weren't even at home, though? What if you had planned a trip or you were working in another country? What then? Well, this happened to quite a lot of people around the world. But first, we are focusing on some individuals who left from America to Morocco. So first, being Lauren Davenport and Daniel Fernandez from Florida, they were just on a camping trip in the Sahara. Now look, that sounds like your first mistake. Camping, gross. And not only that, but camping in like one of the largest deserts in the world, if not the largest desert. I like camping. In a desert? I'll camp. I'll, yeah, I camp in a desert. I like being warm. Look, I'm not saying that I wouldn't do it. I'm just saying it's not my first choice. It's just not my vibe, you know? Um, camping is something... I don't know. Sometimes it's just like maybe not. So, anyway. They were... There, right as COVID hit, not only Morocco, but basically everywhere else in the world. So this is like March when it came to the U.S. Everything has gone to hell. So naturally, the Kingdom of Morocco is like, hey, we need to shut down our borders. Um, No flights in, no flights out. And um, for someone who's visiting, that's sort of a problem, right? Because you can't get home. Yeah. So naturally... These Americans were contacting the embassy and officials here in the U.S. and whatnot. And in true American fashion, there was like zero responsiveness. (laughs) Meanwhile, tourists from Britain and France who were trapped there in Morocco were receiving aid from their countries. America, USA, USA, USA. Make America great again, ladies. So Christina Pratt was visiting... Uh, Morocco from California uh, with a friend and friend's parents. She said, and I quote, France is being very open with the citizens and is moving mountains to get them home. Meanwhile, the U.S. Embassy says, quote unquote, call the airlines and prepare to be here for a while, but not indefinitely. (laughs) The U.S. basically said, fuck you. (laughs) Right. And I'm like, look, like people go and plan on a trip and like maybe plan for like a little bit of an emergency but you don't have like your full like money and food and shelter like you can't just stay there for a while yeah. you know not every, not everybody can just stay there for a while um so another woman 
Elizabeth Eden. She was six weeks pregnant and said she spent two whole days waiting outside the U.S. consulate in Casablanca, and she couldn't get in because of the occupancy limit. And she called the emergency phone numbers on the U.S. Embassy website, sent an email, but still heard nothing back at the time of this um, report, which, by the way, um, my sources for this are the New York Times, and I also have... um, the Morocco World News, and then later my stories um, from George Takai. Is that his name? Takai. Takai. Um, yeah. So at the time of this New York Times article, which was like March 2020, um, nobody's hearing anything back in the beginning of this article. So she said she hadn't heard anything back and she was running out of money and food and she said it's super frustrating not hearing anything from your own government i feel completely abandoned which like why wouldn't you <laughs> I mean, yeah that's and that's like if you really put this into perspective like if you put yourself into their shoes this is a, a mildly to moderately terrifying situation of not being able to get home and learning about a global pandemic at the same time. Yeah, I agree. So another guy, Musa Dien or Musa Dean, um, also was stuck in Casablanca and he was running low on his medications for diabetes. He said even after visiting the consulate, there was still no help for him. The Times article says that they sent an email to the State Department and they replied they have quote-unquote, no higher priority than the safety and security of U.S. citizens overseas. Real seems like it. Um, President at the time, but not my president, number 45, said, we know about it. (laughs) And then continued about citizens stuck in Peru. He said, we have a group of young people in Peru, and we're working on taking care of that with the military. He also said that the administration is not working on a military evacuation, but it's, quote-unquote, looking to get them out, probably through the military. What does that mean? Just because you put a bunch of words together does not mean you've made a sentence. I couldn't say what you just said better. So, (laughs) going back to people from Britain, the British ambassador was tweeting very useful information for people who were stranded. While ours in Morocco, David T. Fisher didn't post a helpful thing at all. And finally, I'm not sure the timeline, Morocco said that they would have a limited number of flights that they would allow to take these people back to their homes. And 30 flights were planned from Morocco to London. Apparently, though, this is a longer and more difficult process than it initially seemed. A loving word from our ambassador, David T. Fisher, went as follows. How do you pick who goes on a chartered flight when you've got 10,000 people, he said. We've put thousands of people on flights, but what we're not doing is going out into the street or letting everyone who comes in, because we don't have the space big enough for that. Now, this man was handpicked by Trump, so I don't know about you. For me, that paints a bad light for his character. Um, He said, the king of Morocco, um, did not ban planes. Morocco has not banned travel. You need to check your facts. But in fact, Morocco's Ministry of Foreign Affairs had said it suspended all international flights to and from Morocco until further notice, except for these 30 allocated flights. So, 
do with that information what you will. So the flights were going to London. So like, could Americans go on those flights to London and then get home? Like, is that the idea that then from there they could go home? We'll get there. Okay. So apparently Fisher had said the big difficulty for all of this was that many U.S. citizens there were not registered as being in Morocco. And it was hard to speak to thousands of people directly at one time. Mind you, the British uh, ambassador had been doing this already through Twitter, and yeah. Twitter was wide open. So, now these 30 flights had a final destination, right? Turns out, it wasn't just in London, and it wasn't in the U.S. They were in France and Britain. So, great for vacationing, just not in this pandemic. Yeah. So. A lot of uncertainty about the rules and the plan for these flights. Um, one picture shared by Twitter user at Peak Paul showed an extremely crowded airport of people all just trying to get home. Una Harris and her friends found flights, but like we mentioned earlier, there was only a final destination of France, Britain, and now Spain. Plus, they weren't even sure if they could get on them at all. She said, quote-unquote, it feels safer to stay where we are versus going to fight with the airlines at the airport where people are crowding and protesting and priority is being given to people who are citizens of countries like France and Spain. Right. She also mentioned that prices raise normally from a few hundred to thousands of dollars. Great. I know. Um, the poors can starve. Right. So... The tourists all started trading Facebook and WhatsApp messaging so they could all figure this out together. There was even a Facebook group titled U.S. Citizens Trapped in Morocco. And the group description read, Our government, embassy, and airlines don't seem to be helping us, so maybe we can help each other. Now, I had mentioned earlier that in Trump's statement, he talked out the people also stuck in Peru. Yeah. Uh, Scott Dyer and Catherine Ward from New York, who were there, mentioned that they were stuck in Lima along with people from Britain and Israel. And even though they were enrolled in the USA STEP program, S-T-E-P, which according to the U.S. Department of State site, um, which is at stepstate.gov slash STEP, STEP is the Smart Traveler Enrollment Program. And it is a free service to allow U.S. citizens and nationals traveling and living abroad to enroll their trip with the nearest U.S. embassy or consulate, guaranteeing safer or that was it okay that's like the quote from the site so basically that kind of just like ensures a safer experience instead of you planning it all yourself like you have it planned through the u.s embassy there so most likely they want to give you like a safe come to a safe trip and a safe trip back home yeah and then like the government has record that you're there right yes Yes, um, but still, they received no word from the U.S. Embassy in Peru. Um, other tourists from Britain said that the U.S. wasn't alone, um, as at the same time, the only word they received from the airport um, that their flight was canceled. So they hadn't heard anything from Britain either. As you can imagine, other countries had similar problems. Another woman, Lynn Fernie from Glasgow, got stuck in Egypt and they received notice of their flights being canceled, and they were told that the hotel that they were staying at was closing its doors, and they needed to leave by a certain day in that week. Which, 
I'm, I'd be like, what do I even do at this point? Yeah. Like, um, nicely enough, though, some employees of the hotel offered to house them, but a language barrier proved to be quite difficult. Ooh, that's so stressful. Um, I know. So now a country I do want to give a shout out to would be Germany because Germany's foreign minister, Heiko Maas, I believe is how you say it, said that 50 million euros were spent on a return plan and accommodation for their citizen who were for their citizens who were stuck away from home. In a quote, they said, we will do everything possible to make it possible for thousands of Germans stranded. Oh, hello. <laughs> stranded abroad to return to Germany in the coming days. Quite a different tone than our president at the time when he said, we we're, know about it. We're, we know. He's like, we're aware. Meanwhile, in Germany, they're like, oh, we will get you home. We will figure it out. And America's like, yeah, I mean, we know about it. I mean, it, it tracks. It's very American. It does. Now, I can't be quite sure if everybody who needed to make a home at the time made it all back safe and sound. But I do have one firsthand account from Ava Cutler back in April in the Morocco World News. Um, she paints the story of their much-anticipated trip to the country, and it was a study abroad for college. They hail from New York City, and two months in, they said they absolutely loved their time there. But by and by, they caught wind of the shutdown and decided to head back home. Um, and actually, even before that, they... Uh, once they had heard of like flights being canceled, they were like, well, maybe I'll just stay here in Morocco. Like, I love it here. I love my guest family. Like, I'm cool. But things started getting more dire. So they were like, you know what? I'll just go home. So they still ran into the same problems, right? Cancel flight to the U.S. No word back from the U.S. And they were able to book a flight to Switzerland only to find out that it couldn't. Like, they literally went to go to board this flight and they're like oh you can't board because you're not a swiss citizen yikes yeah luckily they received a call around 1 a.m on a night from their head of the academic study abroad program they said that the u.s had sent this head um an email about emergency evacuation flights but it was first come first serve they were able to get on though and get back home and they couldn't be happier to spend 14 days in quarantine in New York City because they got home. And even though they loved Morocco and they wanted to be there, they were ready to be home, especially in the midst of 2020. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and there were other just like stories uh, uh, because there were thousands yeah, of people just something stuck. something that I think we all kind of forgot about, but... And do you remember how there were people, like, on cruise ships that just, like, were stuck on a ship? Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't, like, the Princess Cruise Lines or whatever. They were just, like, stuck on a ship that was, like, docked at harbor. And the performers had to, like, quarantine in their cabins and, like, had just lived in these tiny little spaces. Uh, it makes me feel claustrophobic just thinking about it. Yeah. Like, I mean, I know we we all have had a rough time, but, like, I was... I don't know. You know, you and I were about to go on a cruise. So, like, I feel lucky that we were able to be at home and not trapped in, like, another country, especially one with a huge language barrier. Like, that, God, that's just so, that's frightening to me. 
Yeah. Um, and when everything's like going to shit around you, you want to be somewhere where you're familiar and comfortable, you know. So having even just like not being anywhere close to family or friends or like any sort of support system other than the people who are traveling with you, not being in a like familiar territory or having the comforts of home. I feel like that would be super scary in the midst of right. a pandemic. And like even like I can sort of empathize with it because when I went to Japan, even though like Bailey, look, Bailey had given me like great directions, the best to her ability, but there was like some sort of loophole that I fell into with like having to find like this bus and whatever. And so I didn't have any like cell service except for like the Wi-Fi when I was in like a Wi-Fi area. So for a while I was just kind of like, stuck at like the Osaka airport trying to figure out like how to get to Bailey because I knew she's on the island of Japan right but you know I don't speak Japanese and luckily I was able to just like find a bus station and like show the lady the thing on my phone and be like this is where I need to go and she was like my English is bad and I was like that's cool how do I get here and she said bus six give me this many yen and i was like great so i got on bus six they had wi-fi and i was able to figure it all out and get back on track but for a while there i was almost gonna get into panic mode yeah um i but i i'm usually pretty good about like keeping a level head in emergency situations so yeah um I was proud of myself and and there wasn't a COVID pandemic. Could you imagine if like, look, I'm not saying that we would be upset that you and I were both trapped in the same country together. Um, But they might not even let me like stay in your room. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if any of my friends who were still on contract, I don't know of any of them who had like guests at the time that the country locked down. I don't think anyone I knew did. I don't know what they would have done. I don't know. Cause then like, it might be the same thing. Like I might not be able to get home and I don't know, or you might not be able to get home. Who knows? Um, so yeah, so that was like my big story. Right. Mm-hmm. And something that I really think that we all just kind of forgot about because we were all just at home and worried about being like, Oh my gosh, we're at home. We're stuck at home. Well, some people couldn't get home. So think about that one, even though it's a little <laughs> too late to think about that one and feel better. But whatever so a two that i have from george takai the author is unknown the first one um i thought about like trips right travel and i was like oh yeah field trips so i was wondering if anybody had like some i don't know scary spooky field trips um this one isn't quite scary or spooky but it is just gross so there is one that tells of they went to a beach on like a 95 degree heat day and there were a lot of horseshoe crabs that were just mating. I mean like getting <laughs> it on and they said like hundreds. And they said they remember the smell of the horseshoe intimacy was just I really rancid. I hated and that sentence that you just said. Please I want to get across the shot on the pillow. The smell of horseshoe intimacy was rancid. And 
It wasn't until they were scraping the dried salt and foam off their shoes did they realize that it wasn't just salt that they were scraping off. That's okay. And that's what makes it a scary world out there. Bye. Um, Because this other little story is... This is a tad horrific. Not in a gross way. So the author is unknown. But it's backed up by this news article. So... In 1995, in Pennsylvania, there was a school trip to a salt plant where they process salt and give it to everybody in the world. So teachers and maybe employees allowed some kids to hop onto these giant pile of salt and climb them. Mm. Well, fun, right? Um Except, apparently, a conveyor belt turned Mm -mm. on, Mm -mm. and they started to fall. And one girl, Marcy Russell, who was 11 years old, fell into an opening in the pile and died. Like, was she, like, suffocated by the salt? Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Bet you didn't think about that on a field trip. I'm going to send my kid to the salt plant, right? We went to the... Bluebell ice cream place. I went to the Bluebell okay. ice cream place. Yeah, but imagine what if they let us climb a giant pile of ice cream? We died. I think you. Could we got get stuck out. on a conveyor belt. I don't I, know. I think you could get out of that ice cream. Eat yourself know. out. Oh nope. <laughs> oh God. Not that. <laughs> I'm leaving that in. No. Um, eat your way out. Yeah. Um, Oh my god! I do think there's like Uh, yeah. Have you ever seen like a grain silo? Yes. I like one of my most like irrational fears because I like will never go near one is that I will drown in like a grain silo. Mm. Yeah. uh, Wasn't there like a like a famous story of a lady at a hotel who like drowned in a water tank or something? Yeah. But that's isn't she that one in the the elevator who's like looking all around crazy? Yes. Why can't I think of her name right now? I can't think of it either. But if you remember it, you can always email us at hmispod at gmail.com. I think it's Elisa Lamb. Sorry. Fact checker, you know, where you could send us a scary story about when you traveled, a weird, funny, spooky story about a field trip. Maybe you saw a ghost. Maybe your bus flipped over and you're the only one who survived. That's grim. But... Also, any other scary story, we would love to hear it. Please send us an email. We've read that email box. That inbox is thirsty. Okay. It email is thirsty. Email us. Email us. HMISpot at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram and Facebook at HMISpod. And at Hold Me, I'm Scared on the Facebook and Twitter, HMISpod. Okay, so I was wrong. So it's Instagram and Twitter, HMIS Pod, Facebook, Hold Me, I'm Scared. Uh, and if you haven't followed our podcast on any of your streaming services, please do so. And give us a rating. <laughs> Five stars, just because you love us, even if you hate us. Yes. Five stars to show your hatred. Someone who likes cops gave us a, a low star rating. So if you hate cops, mm. rate us five stars. Help us out. Yeah, if you're with a cab like we are, five stars. <laughs> um, but yeah, the travel. Look, I encourage it. I do, 
but please make sure that you have planned out um, some basic emergencies that could happen. Um, and, you know, just also plan to have fun and try not to think about it too much. Um, because sometimes something terrible might happen on that trip. Mm. And that, I mean, that reminds me, and it should remind you, that it is a scary world out there. So hold on to the people you love. Bye. Bye. Also, <laughs> um, I don't know what I was going to say. <laughs> okay, I'm going to stop recording.